Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson, hosted by attorneys Sean Garner and Adam Hanson. Welcome back to Life, Death, and the Law. This is another great episode, and uh, we're in the studio today with Sean Garner, my partner in crime at the law firm, and then we've got our good buddy, Tom Sparks, and we've got Cody running the boards, pushing dials. We've got Anna Karen running around and doing things, I don't know, yelling at us most of the time. But uh, we've got a good show today. We've got uh, three stories we're going to bring up, and we'll talk about those and our opinions about them, things that have been on our mind that have been in the, the news this last week. Um, but before we get too far into it, we've got Cody with his joke. Oh, man. Nine, and his 928 comedy, comedy, comedy is yeah. your travel around gig, right? Well, 928 comedy is the the shows that we put on. So like, we have a show this Friday at the Crest, Alex Hoover, um, guy coming down from L.A. He's been on America's Got Talent and Comedy Central and big stuff. So I'm going to try this joke out. And uh, you guys are, are my testing ground, so maybe it's going to maybe it's going to work. Maybe it's not. I don't know. I I don't think I'm a good person. You know what I mean? I I'm not a good person because I I like to return my shopping cart to the front of the store, right? And you think, oh, that's what a good person does? No, no. I like to return my shopping cart to the front of the store so I could wedge it between the mobility scooters. Why? Make them really work for it. Oh, nice. <laughs> okay. Hey, you're helping them out. Right. You don't you don't appreciate it unless you work for it, right? I, I would there go a step go, further right? and say if you don't do that, then you're just enabling. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Sometimes I see people in in those carts and I'm like, really? You don't need that. That's my point. You don't need that. Come that on. is my point. Hey. Thank you, sir. <laughs> I broke my arm in uh my sophomore year in high school and I rode that cart every day I had that cast on. Your yeah. arm. It was my wrist actually, but yes. Yeah. Exactly my point. One of those people. Okay. So who's the worst person then? Cody, returning the cart. At least you're returning the cart. Most people just put them behind my car. And I go to back out with a bunk. Oh, come on. Mm-hmm. You can't walk five feet and put it in the cart thing? And and that's how like you know you don't want to be friends with that person. Like they, Those are the worst people in society. They can't ever return them to the cart corral. So my kids. So the first story we've got, okay, uh, U.S. financial agency says if you have money in PayPal or Venmo, get it out now. This story was very interesting to me uh, because uh, it brings up the idea that you have federal insurance that allegedly protects your deposits if you deposit your money into a, a normal bank, let's say, if we can say it that way, up to $250,000. Uh, per account. And so we saw this recently with a few banks that failed within the last six months. And uh, they they went out of business. And the federal government came in and said, hey, we're still going to save those depositors. Even if they had more than $250,000 in those banks, we're going to come in and we're going to bail them out. So what the federal government now is saying is, hey, you got to be careful because we might do that to banks that are federally insured through the FDIC, but we're not so sure about PayPal or Venmo. These are different services that aren't necessarily your typical banking, depositing uh, situations. Rather, they're more of like a digital currency type uh, account. And therefore, FDIC insurance might not extend to these particular apps. So if you have a lot of money in them, this article goes on to say, or at least It's reporting that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, so the federal government, an arm of the federal government, an agency is saying you need to be wary of keeping too much money, if any money at all, in PayPal or Venmo. 
So let's get started on this. My first initial thought as I read through this article was, number one, the federal government has been trying to push on us FedNow. That's a new app. That's their digital currency type transaction competitor to Venmo or PayPal. So I can see them coming out and saying, hey, be basically using scare tactics to say, hey, if you have money in Venmo or PayPal, that's bad. You could lose all your money. Like if you if it goes bankrupt like these other banks have gone, we're not going to be there to bail you out. So they're just subtly hinting towards their system of getting on to FedNow. That's my first, as I'm reading this article, that's what my first thought was, is this is just a nuanced way of scaring people, scare tactics, getting them on board with the FedNow app, number one. Uh, Number two, the article did say that you can, there are ways to federally insure up to $250,000 through PayPal and Venmo if you hold that money in like a bank account that's tied to Venmo, and that's my wife uses Venmo all the time for different things, and that's how she has it set up. It's connected to her bank account, not necessarily money just sitting there in Venmo itself. So there's two different things here going on in the article. Sean, what's your first thoughts on this uh, particular announcement by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau? I read an article recently when they were talking about um, the central bank digital currency, and they tied it pretty closely in with COVID and, and all the restrictions that came along with COVID as well as, you know, these digital passports that could come out where it would indicate whether or not you've been vaccinated and therefore free to travel around the world. And they said this is very similar because what they're trying to create is a digital currency that will work worldwide. They said the United States is already behind the curve for a digital currency. And so we need to go with this central bank digital currency and it can fit right in with that uh, digital passport that will indicate whether or not you've been vaccinated and you're complying with all of these government mandates to be safe and follow the norms that are being pushed and the narrative that is being followed. And so there's also been somewhat of an attack on Bitcoin and other digital currencies out there, and they've dropped significantly in stock price from two years ago, and they haven't rebounded yet. So I think that there are no coincidences. I think that this is orchestrated. I think they're trying to undermine the confidence in things that work in the free market very well in order to supplement it or supplant it with a government-organized and funded digital currency. Absolutely. Tom, is this a big conspiracy? Is the federal government out to survey us and get us on board with their FedNow app? I think history will tell you that that's a pretty safe bet. Uh, the, The amount of times where a government in the history of the world has kept itself in check forever is zero. And the amount of times where it hasn't is every government that you've that you've seen. So, I, you know, to someone who would say, "Hey, we're maybe just a bunch of conspiracy theorists," I'd say history's on the side of somebody who's a little bit skeptical. But I would also say that it brings back the the line from the outsiders of like nothing gold can stay, in that um, we have a government app that's saying it can do all of these things and it has all these extra protections and that's going to come at no cost. I would just tell someone who's trying to choose between which app they want to use that you should analyze the pros and cons because 
in my experience, there's hardly any solutions, but there are a lot of trade-offs. So maybe Venmo makes more sense. Like you're saying, your wife uses it for quick transactions. It's tied to a bank account, so there's really no risk. Whereas maybe somebody else would prefer to potentially pay a higher rate on transferring money with the FedNow app in exchange for those extra protections. My biggest concern would be that you get onto the FedNow app and now they can see every transaction that you're 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 doing. Is that a bad thing? Not if you're a good person. You're not you know we're not going out and buying tons of cocaine or fentanyl from bad actors across the border. I'm not doing that. I don't know if you are, Tom or Sean, maybe you are. I haven't asked you or looked at your bank account. But if I were to do that, I mean that's the quickest way to see nefarious things that are going on. Not only that, but when when the, I give the federal government, my biggest concern is I give federal government access to my bank statements, essentially, is what you're doing, my, all my transactions. Now, now the question becomes, well, where does it stop? They can oversee in any transaction that I'm doing, and they can also see what's going, coming in and what's going out. And without context, that might be to my detriment. So, it's very often that um, Sean and I and, and most of us, as we do our taxes every year, you're looking for deductions. You don't want to pay all your money to the government in taxes. And uh, I recognize that you have to pay some of it. You know, we need our, our roads paved is the common thing that I always hear. Well, Adam, you gotta, we have to have our roads maintained. We have to have all these services and things like that. I take issue with a lot of that. But at the same time, I recognize that I don't want all my money going to programs that uh, I don't agree with necessarily. If you were to look at the federal budget, which there isn't one because they can't pass one, but uh, that's another story. You know, they they hold us, our feet to the fire every year. You have to file your taxes or you're going to be in trouble with the IRS. You're going to have to pay back taxes and liens and things like that. But yet they don't give us a report like they are federally mandated to do of what they're spending our money on. And they don't treat my money as sacred like I would treat funds that are entrusted to me as not mine, and, and I have to account for every cent that I'm watching over, yet it's not the same standard when it comes back to the federal government. So number one, giving them access to my transactions, you know, full bore, without any context. What I mean by that is they don't get to see, well, maybe I am bringing in this money from this income source, but ultimately I'm going to have a deduction way of bringing my tax liability down through other expenditures that I'm doing but all they see is all this money coming in and they're going to come after me. The IRS is going to come after me for unpaid taxes potentially because they're not looking at the big picture. Yeah, I might have all this income coming in from different sources, but you're not seeing the expenditures and giving me credit for, well, that expenditure is actually a business expense or this is for this, that or the other, which is actually deductible. So I don't want the federal government looking at my transactions because I don't want to have to explain every transaction to them. I'd much rather have it where it is now, where I have a private bank account that Sean can't see, that um, my wife can't see. Just kidding. My wife can see it. <laughs> I wish. But uh, but I don't want my federal government looking over my shoulder and seeing every transaction I, I'm going through with the idea that they know better than I do. And that's the common theme, I think, of the federal government is I know better than you when it comes to your health, safety, and finances, and therefore... We're going to force you or do something to you unless you comply with what we're promulgating. Well, and I think it's it's pretty clear and uncontroverted that uh, the federal government and the police agencies of the federal government, FBI, CIA, they can be weaponized for achieving the ends of a political party. And 
when you run contrary to that narrative or the beliefs of that political party, then those law enforcement agencies can be set up to um, look into your history and, and determine, okay, what type of criminal activity can we trump up to charge this guy with? Now, I know for a fact that every single day, every one of us is violating probably one, two, or three laws, whether they're state laws or federal laws. And there are so many laws on the books that you simply cannot walk through on a straight line and not break a law, whether it's a, you know running, going too fast in your car and, and having a, a speeding ticket or running a bit of a red light, right? It turned red right during the intersection and you went through it too quickly or whether your, your tax returns weren't filed exactly appropriately. And, and that's a big question out there too because subjective, yeah. it's so subjective. And so the question isn't, are, are there bad people out there that need to be caught and brought to justice? Every single one of us, because the complexity of the criminal code is, is running afoul of it from one time or another during each day. And so once you become a target of a political party, and that political party can weaponize the law enforcement agencies, all they've got to do is go back in history and look up all your transactions to gather the evidence that they need to prosecute you. And that is a big, big problem because obviously the Constitution was written to keep us private and to keep the federal government out of our business, and primarily the Fourth Amendment, to keep us safe from unwarranted searches of our personal um, and, and private papers and our homes. But if a government can see what I'm purchasing, that's a search. And that's a violation right off the bat of the Fourth Amendment. If they do that without a warrant, without probable cause in the first place beforehand, not after the fact, then what is the Constitution? It's a meaningless document. Tom, I'm going to give you the last word on this real quick. Yeah, I would imagine, like, in that case of the Fourth Amendment, like, there's probably going to be something buried in the terms of service that, hey, you waive any rights of search and seizure or something like that. But even if that didn't happen, what this— what this reminds me of in the end game is something more akin to what China has, where they have a very powerful central political party that has a high degree of surveillance. And surveillance could be cameras or it could be monitoring your bank accounts. And we're not here in this country at this time with what they have, where they have social credit scores, where your kids can't go to a certain school because you made a certain purchase or you voted for the wrong party. And uh, but you know, as things generally go, it's a downhill slope and it's very difficult to climb back out. So this is could be, you know, a step in the wrong direction, in my opinion. Coming up next, is hay worth the sacrifice of our water? We'll talk about that in just a minute. This is Life, Death, and Law, 560 AM, KBLU. Coming up, more thought-provoking conversations on life, death, and the law right after this. Hey, you, my Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, 
Marner and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back to Life, Death, and the Law. We're going to talk about uh, allocation of water. I know that it's a big subject recently, and I'm glad that it's actually become more prevalent in the news. It seemed like the Colorado River and the, and the allocation of its resources weren't widely talked about just a few years ago. Um, I've been looking at the Colorado River as a student for about 15, 20 years. Um, I actually majored in political science in Colorado and was actually at the headwaters of the Colorado River and studied during the drought period. This was in um, 2002, 2003, where there was a significant drought. And uh, there were there were restrictions on watering your lawn. You'd get a fine if you watered your lawn in um, Fort Collins, Colorado, near where the headwaters of the Colorado River start. So I thought that was ironic because um, I had family that lived in Yuma, Arizona, and we frequently visited there, and all their lawns were green and being watered or irrigated, and their pools were full. And so I I thought, well, Yuma doesn't get a whole lot of rain. Why are they getting all this water usage, whereas uh, Colorado's getting all these restrictions? And it all has to do with uh, the law of the river. And how the law of the river goes is uh, first in use, first in right. So if you're using the water first then you get to continue using that portion of the water, and and you have a right to use it. So they've allocated the Colorado River among two basins or two uh, upper and lower basin states. We've got the upper basin, and that comprises of Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming. And then you've got the lower basin, and that's primarily Arizona and California. We've got a little bit of Las Ve- or Nevada in there as well. Um, but... How the upper basin does it is they allocate it by percentage. And so if there's not enough water to go around for the upper basin, then they have to decrease each state's use by the percentage that they're allotted. So, for example, Colorado is allotted 51% of their um, 7 million acre feet of water. I don't want to throw out a bunch of statistics here, um, although I could because I'm very smart. But the thing is, that they reduced the amount of water that they were using at the time, which made sense. And uh, they went through it, and they were looking at a lot of different alternatives to solve that water problem. In fact, they had this, what they called the Great Straw Project, where they put literally a pipe through the Rocky Mountains from the West Slope, which is primarily, it gets a lot more rainfall and snow packed during the wintertime, and uh, they transported water over to the eastern slope, the, the, the Denver side of the mountain, and uh, were supplementing its water uses through that. So that's innovation that really worked well. Um, in the lower basin, they have not done that. What they've done is they've, they've specified how many acre feet of water, and that's how they measure apportionment of water is acre feet of water, um, among the states. So California gets about... 62% of the allotage, but you got to look at it. It's, it's actually 4.4 4 
million acre feet of water. And they get that regardless of whether or not it's there. They get that first and foremost. And Arizona is pretty much second in priority. They get 2.8 million acre feet. And if there's a shortage, then Arizona is going to feel that shortage. And we've seen it in the years past. For three years in a row, we've had water reductions and restrictions. And uh, it went from about 21% to 23% to 28%. And uh, so currently we're in a 28% reduction of the amount of water that we're allowed to take of that, that allottage from the Colorado River. And people are saying this is not sustainable. We need to look at what the natural flow of the river is, even over dry periods, and, and allocate it apportionately. And since the states aren't agreeing how to do it, the federal government's going to come in and they're going to take control of this. And that, to me, is very scary because I, I have a strong distrust for the federal government. I'd far prefer the states. I don't like any government intervention at all, but I, I far prefer state intervention over uh, federal intervention. And so what the federal government said is, if you don't um, demonstrate that you can reduce the water usage by between 2 and 4 million acre feet, um, then we are going to decide how to allocate it. And so the states came to an agreement that they would reduce the water usage by 3 million acre feet. And in order to do that, they would compensate farmers by paying them not to use the water to irrigate their fields. And the, the, the thirsty crop and the predominant crop that was going to be fallowed, meaning they're going to plow it under and allow the, the field to go dry, was going to be hay. It's going to be alfalfa, and it's also going to be cotton. And so farmers are now getting paid to not farm those fields. Now, that seems like a solution on the front end because, okay, we're using less water. However, who is paying the farmer, or rather it's the landowner? It's not the farmer. They say the farmer because when you say the landowner, it doesn't have quite the ring to it. It doesn't, it doesn't roll off the tongue quite as sweet. And uh, it's the landowner. And so the landowner gets paid that money, so the farmer is unemployed. The field workers are unemployed. The people that ship the crop are unemployed. The restaurants that buy the crop have to hike up the prices. Therefore, they have to lay off workers and probably have less business. So it's got that trickle-down effect. And where is that money coming from to cause all of that uh, unemployment and, and inflation of, of prices for food? It's coming from the Inflation Reduction Act, which was ironically named that in the first place because it, it, it fed billions of dollars into the economy, which only causes more inflation. But they're going to pay $1.2 billion over three years to reduce the usage of water. It's, of course, a short-term solution because that, that's going to run out after three years. And uh, what's going to happen to those farmers who have chosen not to to farm those fields when they're not getting paid for it any longer, not to farm them, who knows? That's, so it's not a long-term solution. Um, my, the only thing that I can take out of this is that anything that the government meddles with generally costs much more than it should cost and is far less efficient than it would be in a free market system. Uh, I've got a quote uh, from Thomas Jefferson on the issue. And it says, were we directed from Washington when to sow and when to reap, we should soon want of bread.
And this is exactly what's going on here. It's th- the government is telling us when to sow, when to farm these fields, because you can't farm without water, and when to reap. And we're, we're all going to be far less or far worse off for it because there's going to be less out there. Now, I think that a common solution is to let the market do its thing. But what does that mean when it comes to the river? Because how do you charge for the river? Well, right now, um, people that are entitled to use of the, of the water get charged very, very little. They get charged by the irrigation districts to channel the water to their properties. But the water itself, there's n- near to no cost of the water. Now, under this program, if you crunch the numbers, you take $1.2 billion dollars and you allocate that over, uh, what, 2.3 million acre feet, that's about $520 per acre foot. So there you go. There you can put a dollar value on water. So if we want to let the market run its course, we now have a dollar value for water. Let's, let's start to implement some type of program where we look at water as a resource that is finite, that has a money value and determine what crops should be grown given that resource that you've got to purchase and use in your farming decisions and what crops you grow. So, Adam, what's your take on that? Should we put a price on every gallon of water that we take out of the river? No, I don't think so. I think <clears throat> I'm more old school than that. I think I, I know you disagree with me on this, but uh, I think those that need it should use it. I think property law, I mean, it's over 100 years old, the idea being if you don't use it, you lose it. And that's the basic tenet of property law. That could be water. It could be land. You know, if you don't use your land, then the law would say somebody else can come in and take that land if they're going to put it to good use. That's the typical, um, you know, linchpin of property law. And it's the same with water. I think the federal government... But doesn't that promote waste? If you don't use it, you lose it. So then that incentivizes potentially using or taking more water than you actually need just to secure your right to have it the next year. And and, and, and we've seen that happen where people water fields that are not actually growing anything just because they don't want to lose those resources. We also see that in the federal government with programs that they have that same concept, use it or lose it type thing, and they go out and buy a bunch of new equipment and throw away perfectly good equipment because um, that's just how the operation runs. Yeah, and so it's already happening, and that's what I'm. That's what I'm saying is that's the current law, and that's old. I mean, it's old school. That's from English law that we brought over to the United States as far as property is concerned, and that's how it's working right now. So a farmer that doesn't use the water is going to lose it, it, it through the legal doctrine um, that we just described, and and so it, it uh, fosters waste of that water, so they don't lose it. Here in Yuma. So you're not you're not promoting that doctrine. You're no, just, I'm just, you're saying, just reiterating I'm just, it. So. Yeah, I'm making. I'm just stating the fact. Got it. So the idea is here in Yuma, I think we're kind of um, what's the word? I don't want to say lazy. I think that's a derogatory term when it comes to watering. But Sean, you know firsthand because you have a few acres of of um, flood irrigation. You have to call the the ditch rider and schedule the water to come. And you always have to go and take your tractor and build up the berms and things like that so the water doesn't break the berm and, and go where you don't want it to go in order to, to water your trees and your, your, um, your acreage. That's not the best way to do things, um, especially 
you know, when we're talking about conserving water, flood irrigation is probably the the least conservative way to do it. Says who, though? Well, it's you take a ton of water, you saturate it, mm-hmm. and uh, you don't need that much water. There's different ways to do that. All you need to do is get that water to the root system, and most of that will evaporate before it gets to the root system, especially here in the summer summer months where it's 120 degrees. As opposed to sprinklers that spray it into the air. Well, that's worse. I mean, yeah, so I'm not advocating for either of those. If we want to talk about technology, I would advocate for drip irrigation. Either you're dripping right at the root level or you it's subterranean and you, you dig some lines. Now, that's a little bit cost prohibitive in most cases, but that is the best way to do it. I mean, you decrease your water usage by 80 85%, something like that. When so you, you think that a government-mandated technological advancement of how to irrigate crops is the way to go instead of allowing the market to say, hey, here's how much the water costs. If you want to pay that much to flood your land, so be it. But if you want to be more cost efficient, find ways to do it. I don't think it's a single solution proposition. I think you do all of that. I think... But I who, think, who, do, who implements it? That's the question. Does the government or does a free market? Free market. I, I think... Okay. I think uh, we need more technological innovation. I think that's what we need. How does the free market um, implement it if currently the water is being essentially given out to those that have been using it in the past, first come, first serve type thing, and uh, now we're, we're facing this issue where there's not enough to go around. So... The laws need to change. The the civilization has changed. The population has changed. The demographics has changed. So we need to somehow determine how to allocate this precious resource. And if you can't attribute a market value to the resource, then how do you how do you incentivize technological advances unless the government is directly incentivizing that by paying people to innovate and and put in these different drip irrigations or these other infrastructure systems? I don't pretend to know a lot about water and irrigation, but what I do understand a little bit about is like, I think the economic principle that drives every transaction in that you've got people pursuing self-interest, which is the driver for any any sort of transaction. So if a farmer is pursuing self-interest and wants to farm this crop and it takes this much water, as long as the numbers add up, he or she's going to do that. And um, I think that's what essentially is going to drive most of these. That's a good point, Tom. We're going to get back to this topic, but we're going to take a break. This is Life, Death, and the Law. Coming up, more thought-provoking conversations on life, death, and the law right after this. Hey, you, my Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com. 
You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back to Life, Death, and the Law. We're talking about the exciting topic of water, and it should be exciting because uh, without it, we all die. So we want to talk about this is a resource that we all need, and uh, right now we have record snowpacks that are melting and they're refreshing and and filling back up our reservoirs, Lake Mead and uh, Lake Powell, and this is all good news. Um, But it might not occur year after year. These atmospheric rivers, as they're called, where so much moisture has flown, has come through um, the atmosphere in the form of clouds and just dumped snow and moisture in the mountains that's produced higher flowing rivers. And then now these reservoirs, which were running dry, both in California and in Utah, and uh, of course here home in Arizona, they are filling back up. And this is great news. But we can't rely on that to happen year after year. These were record-breaking snowfalls, and so what we need to do is have a long-term plan for what's going to happen. So this, the proposed solution, the federal government says you've got to cut down the water usage for the southern basin states. We're talking primarily Arizona, California. And uh, you've got to cut that down by 2 to 4 million acre feet. So what they're doing is they're paying the farmers. They've got a budget of $1.2 billion to reduce their water usage, essentially to uh, plow under the crop and not use it to grow new crop. The problem is the the river still flows, and we need to have it go through uh, the turbines of these dams, both the Hoover Dam and uh, the Glen Canyon Dam. A big issue that was going on the whole time when... um, we're, we're talking about the drought and the water getting so low in these reservoirs is it wasn't high enough to continue to produce hydroelectricity. So let's say that uh, we come up with this drip system that requires us to use a fraction of the water from the Colorado River, okay? And uh, the, the, the typical river flow, even in dry months, is about 14 million acre feet. So the, the upper basin states, they need about 7 million, and the lower basin states, they need... a Right now, it's allocated for $9 million, so we're $2 million short. But at least 7 million acre-feet must flow through those turbines to keep up with the energy demand that we have. And, so, and it also needs to keep up with the environment and, and the fish that are sustained by it and all the wildlife that are sustained by the river. You can't just say, well, we're going to save all this water, and it's going to be um, up in this reservoir, and that's going to be a great thing. If we don't need any water for the next three years, we're just going to save it all up. That means the lower portion of the Colorado River goes dry. That's not a solution. So here's my question. If the the farmers decide not to irrigate, and we do drip irrigation, okay, and we only need, let's call it 5 million acre feet that is flowing down the river, we still need this at least 7 to come through the turbines to keep the electricity going, and to keep the, um, the environment for all the wildlife. So what happens to the rest of the water? Where does it go? Where did it used to go before we, we used it for irrigation? Downstream. Downstream. Where is downstream? Where is the ultimate endpoint? The oh. Gulf? Yeah, the Gulf of California. So it, it, it flows into the ocean. In fact, there's this huge sandbar in the Gulf of California that's made up of the silt that came and washed through the Grand Canyon, and what 
I, I'm sure there's some good that that does. I'm sure that some animals and wildlife like that. Maybe some people enjoy that sandbar down there. But I'll tell you what, making the deserts bloom with all sorts of crops, lettuce and spinach and alfalfa and grapes and almonds and everything else, I think is a more productive way of using the river than just allow it to flow right past us and say, hey, we're saving water. Think, you know, all the environmentalists ought to be thanking us. It's going now right past our farm fields that are laying fallow and blowing dust, and it's going and flowing into the ocean. Many environmentalists would agree that if we could take water out of the ocean and make it fresh again with low energy costs, that would be a good solution. Why don't we just not let it go into the ocean in the first place and use it before it passes by? And, and that is my question. If we're not going to be using it for irrigation, irrigation is an efficient way of watering for one purpose in that it's very low energy intensive. You open up a canal fence and the water flows using gravity. So you don't use any electricity to do it for the most part. There is sometimes of ir- some types of irrigation where you, you be pump, you're pumping it out through mechanical means, but most of it is gravity-fed. And also what it does is, is it recharges the underground aquifers. A lot of people use well water, and uh, a lot of farmers use well water, and, and even residential uh, use of water is well water. Well, if that water is zipping past us just in the river to the ocean, you don't get to recharge those aquifers. That's not going to recharge the aquifers. When you irrigate those fields, you get the temporary um, short-term production of the crop, but you also get the more long-term recharging of the aquifers and the habitat that surrounds that with the wetlands being maintained over a long period of time. So I, I don't think that we need to eliminate flood irrigation just because it uses a lot of water. The water is actually recycling. It's not just disappearing. It's being used both in the environment and in the economy and producing a lot of good. To me, it's an argument of uh, self-sufficiency. So if I'm a farmer and um, my lifeblood is this crop or these crops all year round, um, then... I want to find a source of water that I don't have to rely on a government agency to give it to me. And that, so that's my, that's just the way my mind works. Right. On my own house, I invested in, I saved my money knowing that it was going to be a pretty penny, but I invested my money into a solar array that powers our well pump. Yeah. So that I don't have to worry about city water. I don't have to worry about APS providing electricity to me, I can do, I will always have water. That was my biggest goal for my family was to always have water for myself, for our animals, for, for life on our little homestead, if you want to call it that. And so I invested in that technology so I didn't have to rely on a government agency to give it to me. On a farming landscape, it's, it's bigger. It's a lot bigger. You need a lot of water if you're going to flood irrigate and so, yes, you can drill a well. Those wells are exorbitant to drill for some reason. For Like I've talked to a good friend of mine out in Hyder, and to drill their well, it's probably 100 times more expensive than it was to drill my well. I don't know why. I don't know if they have to go deeper. I don't know what the purpose is. Maybe they need to really pull out a ton of water. But it is expensive for a farmer to drill a well, and so the next cheapest source would be the Colorado but I, if I were in a, in a farming situation where I'm a farmer and I've got this big operation, I've got to provide water to my crops, I want to be self-sufficient. I'm going to start moving. 
I'm just, this is in theory, right? It's probably, it's cost prohibitive right now, but I would be moving towards a system in my agricultural um, design that I'm moving away from whether or not the government's going to give me water or not. I'm going to be looking for sources on my property of drilling wells and getting off of uh, the Colorado. I'm going to look for technological sources that will allow me to use drastically less water, but still allow my crops to flourish. So drip irrigation is one of those means, whether it's subterranean or hovering right above the root system. When you make decisions, what's your primary motivator? What's the first thing you think about when you're making decisions as to what to buy and, and, and uh, what type of resources you use? Whether or not I can control it, probably. Okay. And if it's going to withstand what I Even if you can control it, if you can't afford it, then there's no really purpose in even thinking about it. If you can't afford the resource, then it's not available to you, right? Because you'd like to go to Phoenix every day, and probably the most efficient way to get there is a plane. But that's going to be expensive, right? And, and if you built a runway right on your property, on your little homestead, that would even be more efficient. But if you can't afford that, then what's the point? So the whole, it all comes back to market. If, if you let the market run things, then you get down to technologies that not only work, but that are practical. Like a runway on your property, as much as you'd like it, is not practical. And Yeah, I know. You're rolling your eyes because you want that. But, but You need the helicopter to get you to the airport to the, fly. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So, so what I'm saying is if, if we let the market do its thing, the, we've already set a price on water. Now, I don't know whether or not uh, 500 and $20 per acre foot is the accurate price, but it's, it's somewhere in between that and free, right? Because it's essentially, it's, it's very, very cheap right now for most farmers to receive their water. And uh, we should put a price on water that incentivizes innovation, that incentivizes technological advances, and also allows them to have control. So they get to control through how they decide how do they spend their money, what crops they plant, and how they use their water, whether it's drip irrigation, whether it's sprinkler systems or flood irrigation. You're talking about this uh, well that you have. Your well is a wonderful thing, but it's worthless if the aquifer runs dry. And if that Colorado River is raging past us and, and contributing to this sandbar in the Gulf of California, then it's not going to do your aquifer any good, and your well is going to run dry. So we want to use the water that we have. We just want to use it wisely. And we've seen over and over again that the government cannot come up with the program to help us use our resources wisely. What does it is market forces. So we've got to allocate, and, and there's a lot of research on this, and a lot of even uh, environmentalists believe the same, that we've got to attribute the value to our water that it really applies to us. Water is everything. So let's attribute a dollar value to it that is more... Um, consistent with how valuable it is because it's, it's certainly not zero. It may be $500 an acre foot. An acre foot of water is a heck of a lot of water. That's one football field, football field filled a foot deep with water. 500 bucks for that, I think, is probably market price. And farmers may disagree with that, but there's somewhere in between. So rather than the federal government getting involved in determining who gets what water, having a system where we determine how much of the water is worth it is applied to everybody and then let the market determine what type of technologies to apply and what type of crops to plant. That's all the time we have for today. We could talk about this.
for days and days. But we're going to have to end this show and talk to you next week. This is Life, Death, and the Law. If you have questions or want to know more about something that was discussed today, please call the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson at 928-783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com. Hey, Yuma, Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com.